Mark chapter 15 is where we're going to be this morning looking at the crucifixion of Christ. Mark chapter 15, if you would turn with me in your Bibles. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask that he would speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son, that you would pursue us by sending your son to die for our sins. And we ask as we read of Christ's trial and crucifixion and burial this morning, that it would be fresh to our ears and to our hearts, that you would impact us again with your love. God, you're so good to us. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You tell us that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, our guide, to lead us and guide us in truth. So would you send your Holy Spirit, remove distractions, we give to you those things that are weighing down our hearts. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. In this text, we find a centurion, a Roman soldier, given the job to crucify Christ. After Christ breathes his last, he declares these words, truly, he was the Son of God. Many people mocking Christ, many people rejecting Christ, but he realized there's something different about this man. For some of you, this journey that we're going to take in the next few minutes, you're familiar with, you've studied, you've read through the crucifixion of Christ many times. For others of you, maybe it's the first time that you've studied this section of scripture in detail. You've heard of the crucifixion of Christ, but either way, I pray that our hearts would be open to be impacted by the love of God again. Our faith relies upon this, the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't ever want to move from this place of understanding, meditating upon, celebrating the gift of Jesus Christ upon the cross. So verse 1, immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. Christ was arrested in the middle of the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now it's early morning. The chief priests, the elders, they decide we need to take Jesus to Pilate. Who's Pilate? He's the governor of Judea, of southern Israel, from the Roman Empire, also of Samaria. He's going to be given the task to make the final verdict on Christ. Remember, Israel is under the occupation of Rome at this point, so they have lost the ability to implement capital punishment. For Christ to be crucified, it must go through the Roman Empire. Why was Christ crucified? The details, the practicals of that. The Jews would stone people to death, but the Romans were the ones who who crucified. Christ's crucifixion predicted in the Old Testament. In Psalms 22, the fulfillment of that, it would be the Romans who order the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Verse 2, then Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered and said to him, it is as you say. He does recognize, Jesus recognized that, that he is the king of the Jews. Jesus is the king of kings. A lot of rulers, a lot of leaders, a lot of people in positions of power, but Christ is the ultimate authority. And the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. Then Pilate asked him again, saying, do you answer nothing? See how many things they testify against you. But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. As we look at 
the trial of Christ, first he's accused. You may want to write that down. The Son of God, he is accused. He's accused of many things. It's difficult to go go under accusation, isn't it? To have people undermine your character, to say things about you that aren't true. As Christ is accused, he answers nothing, to the point where it marvels Pilate. Pilate, no doubt, had seen many people come before him and ordered their execution, many in that place of pleading for their lives, groveling before, before Pilate. But here Jesus, he, he just simply doesn't even respond. His silence speaks louder than words, doesn't it? It's penetrating. What does it show? What does this silence show? It shows a tremendous amount of self-control. Also, it shows that he's surrendering to the cross, As a lamb that's led to the slaughter, he's willingly laying his life down to be crucified in the midst of this accusation. In verse 6, now at the feast, he was accustomed to release one prisoner to them, whomever they requested. This was their custom. The Roman Empire would release one prisoner to the Jews. There was this tension taking place between Israel and Rome. Pilate's trying to to keep the Israelites happy, but yet there's many in the community that want to uprise against the Roman Empire. So to try to appease them, bring them to a place of peace, every year at the Feast of Passover, leading into the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they'd say, you guys get to choose one prisoner that's going to be released. Kind of an interesting exercise. What if Colorado Springs got to choose one person to let out of the Colorado prison? Who would the community pick? Who would the community choose? What if it was put on Facebook or put on Twitter and they took votes and whoever got the most likes would be freed from from prison? Who, Who do you think the community would choose? I always find it interesting when presidents leave office and they have the power to let people out of prison, who who they choose and why. It's fascinating. I think a great book would do the research on what happens to those people's lives afterwards after they received grace, got a second chance, got out of prison, you know, what happened at at that point? So this exercise that's yearly tradition is very interesting. So verse 7, and there was one named Barabbas who was chained with his fellow rebels. They committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude crying aloud began to ask him to do just as he'd always done for them. So now the crowd is demanding it demanding for someone to be released. But Pilate answered them saying, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? For he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Pilate stirs the pot here. He knows that the chief priests are not going to like this title, king of the Jews. So he says, well, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? Would you like me to release to you the king of the Jews? He knew the reason that they wanted Christ crucified, bottom line, was because of envy. Envy is very destructive. A lot of sins, a few sins, tend to be on our radar. We know the damage or the danger of those sins, but envy is not one that we would be aware of many times. Oh, that's okay. It's okay for me to be, be envious. But envy, jealousy, led to the crucifixion of Christ. They didn't like the way that people loved Jesus. They were jealous for the affection that the crowds gave to Jesus. They wanted that back. They wanted to be the center of attention. We need to guard our hearts against envy. 
But the chief priests, they stirred up the crowd so that he could rather release Barabbas to them. So the chief priests working the crowd saying, no, cry out for Barabbas, not for Jesus. Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him, with him whom you call king of the Jews? You're crying out for Barabbas, what do you want me to do with the king of the Jews? So they cried out again, crucify him. Then Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, crucify him. This is filled with emotion and passion, not based on logic or reason. Pilate says, what did he do wrong? What evil has, has he done? And they just cry the louder, crucify him, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them. So Christ is accused, the Son of God is accused, but he's also rejected. He's rejected. He's rejected by Pilate. He's rejected by the multitude. Pilate wants to gratify the crowd more than he wants to do the right thing concerning Jesus. We get a fuller picture from the other gospel accounts. Pilate is wrestling here. There's a part of him that doesn't want to order the crucifixion of Christ. He wants to wash his hands from it. His wife even has a dream and and tries to warn him. But what wins out for Pilate? I've got to please the crowd. I've got to gratify the crowd. There's many today that reject Christ simply because they want to please other people. They go, you know, if I receive Christ, if I follow my conviction with Christ, it's not going to please my spouse. It's not going to please my friends. It's not going to fit in with culture. I possibly could be rejected at college and in my classes or with my fellow workers. I realize I'm going to be swimming upstream. We tend to think that it's only young people that deal with peer pressure. It's only young people that care about what others think of them, but it consumes our lives, even as adults, doesn't it? Don't allow peer pressure to gratify the crowd to keep you from accepting Christ. The multitudes, Jerusalem, is crying out saying, we want Barabbas, crucify Christ. It's amazing what we'll accept in replacement of Jesus Christ. Barabbas is a murderer. In this rebellion, he had committed murder. He was an insurrectionist wanting to overthrow the Roman government. And the crowd saying, we'll take a murderer over Jesus Christ. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. It's a tremendous downgrade when we say no to Jesus Christ. When we say no to him ruling our lives, what will we take in replace of it? We'll take Barabbas. Yet we find ourselves in the person of Barabbas, don't we? He's set free. He's guilty. He's ready to be crucified and Christ takes his place upon the cross. Christ took my place upon the cross. I'm guilty. You may be saying, well, wait a second. I've never killed anybody. Yet Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're angry in our hearts, we've committed murder. If we lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery. We're guilty. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus took the death for us upon the cross. So we see ourselves in the person of Barabbas. There's those moments in time Or someone maybe is driving down the road and someone comes in front of them and then they get in a car accident and maybe pass away and there's this feeling of, that should have been me. If they wouldn't have come right in front of me, I would have been the one who who was killed. Sometimes a person has a, a ticket for a flight. The last minute they can't make the flight. 
Someone else is on standby. They take their seat, their very seat on the plane. The plane crashes, everybody dies, and they have this feeling of, that should have been me. What happened to Barabbas' life? Did he go and watch Christ be crucified? They go, that, that was the cross that was, was meant for me. Barabbas is released. Jesus is ordered to be crucified. And he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Accused, rejected, and now scourged. Christ is whipped. Before he's crucified, before he's nailed to the cross, they take a flagellum, they take a whip. The, the Roman soldiers were experts at torture. Before someone was executed, they would beat them brutally with this whip to try to wear them down before the cross, to exhaust them before the cross. History tells us that some would be killed from the beating. Many times they would tie bone and objects of metal into the strands in this whip. Most of us have seen pictures of someone who has been brutally whipped the scars that remain the rest of their life as the flesh on their back has been ripped apart. The, the whip would also extend to the front, to the rib cage, just ripping off flesh. Your hands would be tied and your back exposed. Every detail of the scripture is important. Why did Christ go through this? Why was Christ scourged? Isaiah 53, verse 5, listen to this, says, For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Christ was scourged to make us whole, to heal us. So there's this question, if by his stripes we are healed, do we experience physical healing every time as believers in this life? Some people will use this verse and say, because Christ was whipped, he was whipped for our healing. The price has already been paid, so all believers will be healed in this life. I don't agree with that, and this is why, because sometimes the ultimate healing is to go to heaven. God will heal you. By Jesus' stripes, we are healed, but sometimes he waits for the healing to be when he takes us to heaven. Is that not healing? That, that's the healing of the ultimate proportions. You're never going to get sick again at that point. You're in glory. You're in the presence of God. Does God sometimes give physical healing in this life? Absolutely, for his glory. We don't take that away from the Lord. But other times, he chooses to allow us to go through that physical suffering for a season. We see this in the Apostle Paul's life. He had a thorn in his flesh. He asked God three times to take it away. And God's response was, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul accepted it. He said, I'll therefore most boldly rejoice in affirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He says, okay, if it means Christ's power being upon me, God's grace being sufficient for me, so does Christ heal? Yes. Sometimes does he allow the difficulty to remain in our lives until eternity? Yes. I also believe when it speaks of Christ's healing in our lives, it's not just physical. Yes, that's an aspect of it, but by his stripes we're healed. A lot of us, the deepest wounds that we bear are internal. Isaiah 61 tells us that Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted. How does he heal the brokenhearted? With his love. A lot of the brokenness that we experience 
internally is because of what others have done to us. And here Jesus says, look, I was abused in this way. I was brutalized in this way. By my stripes you are healed. Let me heal your broken heart. I know the suffering that you're going through. Jesus turned his back for you so you can have confidence that he'll never turn his face from you. We struggle with receiving God's steadfast love in our lives. How do we know that his love's unconditional? Well, look at his back. Look how he was beaten for you. Look how he was scourged for me. Verse 16, then the soldiers led him away into the hall called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Praetorium in the Latin, it means the general's tent. The idea of this hall is this is where the general would be, as well as all of the soldiers. Christ had to walk through this hall of shame. The whole garrison comes to mock him. And they clothed him with purple. They twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head. Why a crown of thorns? We know a result of Adam's sin was the curse. Part of the curse is weeds. Part of the curse is thorns. Part of the curse is toiling with the field in order to get food. Not a coincidence that Jesus is wearing the crown of thorns. He's taken the curse for us. The Bible calls Adam the first Adam and Jesus the last Adam. Adam in the garden of Eden brought us into sin. Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane leading to Golgotha leads us to forgiveness. They have large thorns in Israel. You can go and uh, go and see them. And as they make this crown of thorns, don't just think a, a small rose bush that we have here. And with this crown of thorns, for sure, they would press it into his scalp, press it into his skull and begin to mock him. And began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. So Christ is accused. He's rejected. He's scourged. But he's also mocked. This whole parade that they're putting on, the robe of purple, the crown of thorns, they're feigning worship. They're faking worship in their mockery of of Jesus Christ. Christ is mocked at this moment. He continues to be mocked by people, doesn't he? There's lots of people that feign their worship to Christ out of mockery. Maybe they know that you're a believer. Maybe they know that you call upon the name of Jesus. So they begin to call upon the name of the Lord simply to mock the Lord and mock you as well. Do you think that Christ is affected by the rejection and the mockery of others? In one sense, no. It doesn't change who he is. But in another sense, absolutely yes. Why? Because he cares about each person that mocks him. He cares about each person that rejected him. He created them. They're made in his image. He died for them. He wants to be in relationship with him. Doesn't want any to perish. Doesn't want any to be separated from him. So absolutely it affects his heart. Absolutely it, it breaks his heart. In verse 21 Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. Simon the Cyrene, Cyrene is North Africa. 
He has come from North Africa to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover about 800 miles with his two sons, Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is just a great name. Ladies, if you're expecting a boy, just go with Rufus. Never met, never met a Rufus, but I think it's just a good, strong name. You ladies are like, I don't think so. Not, not going to do it. And at this moment, picture all the chaos. Everybody's attention is, is drawn to Christ. When there's something happening, when there's trauma happening, human nature is to look. If there's an accident that's on the other side of traffic, if you're going northbound and there's an accident on southbound, you can't help but, but look. So everyone's drawn to Christ, making the way to Golgotha, and the soldiers, they look to Simon. He says, you, you carry Christ's cross. And in this moment, he's, he's drawn into this. And he carries the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. To deny ourselves. That's pretty vivid when you think about the cross of Jesus Christ. Who witnesses their father carrying the cross of Jesus? The two boys, Alexander and Rufus. In Romans 16, we find a Rufus mentioned. It's possible that it's the same man. May be or may not be, but here's the challenge to us as parents, if you're a parent, is do our kids witness us carrying the cross? They go, my dad, my mom, they've taken up their cross and they're following Jesus Christ. They're not perfect, but they love Jesus. They're attempting to follow Jesus with everything that they are. And they brought him to the place Golgotha, Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. So Golgotha means place of the skull. In Latin, it's Calvary. Our, the name of our church, Rocky Mountain Calvary. Literally, in the language, it's Rocky Mountain place of the skull. We could be called Skull Church, and that would be an accurate representation of our name. Calvary represents the cross. Why would we call our church Calvary? Because the importance of the cross, the importance of Christ dying for our sin. Men and women were crucified at this place, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the city gates and the walls, and it was called Golgotha, place of the skull. Now, why was it called Golgotha? It could be because this hill had a rock face that looked like a skull when you looked at it. There is a hill just outside of the ancient city that, that does look like a, a skull. It could be that people were crucified, their skulls were, were left out, and so skulls are piling up to send a message, don't cross the Roman Empire. So it was called the place of the skull. Why it's called the place of the skull is not important. What took place there is important. Jesus went to this place of darkness, this place of despair, in order to die for our sins. There's times in our lives where we go to our own Golgotha. We go to our own place of difficulty. And we have to understand, we've got to know that Jesus experienced greater pain at Golgotha than we'll ever experience. And he's there to provide comfort. He's there to be the captain of our souls. He's gone to Golgotha for us. He's gone to that place of the skull. If you're in that place this morning, may God encourage you. May the very presence of a crucified and risen Savior come to you and give you hope in the midst of that darkness. 
Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take it. And when they'd crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. They took the very garment of Jesus. They wanted one person to walk away with the garment of Jesus. No doubt filled with blood from him being beaten and scourged. They saw some value in Christ's clothes, in his garment. We can sell this. So let's gamble for it. The winner takes it. This is eerie in a sense, the reality of what's taking place. God in human flesh being crucified for their sin, these soldiers. But yet they're concerned with how do I make more money? And they're playing games. They're gambling at the foot of the cross. And how many times do we play games at the foot of the cross? For some of you, you've been coming to church possibly for your whole life. You're familiar with the cross. Maybe even as we go through this section of scripture, your tendency is ho-hum, ho-hum. Here we go again. God sent his son. Christ was crucified for my sin and you're playing the game. You're here for some other reason. It's some selfish motivation. You get something out of it. Your spouse is appeased. Your parents is appeased. Someone's off your back because you're, you're at church. You've got your Bible. You know the right thing to say. You know the words to the song, but you've never stopped to look up. What if these soldiers would have stopped to look up? And they would consider something's happening here. Something magnificent, something beyond words is, is taking place. And if you are playing games at the foot of the cross, look up. That was me growing up. I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up going to church and Christian school. And I was the master of playing games at the foot of the cross. I had it figured out. And it wasn't until I stopped and looked and realized that Christ died for me while I was a sinner. Christ died for me while I didn't want anything to do with him. That's the moment that God won my heart and life. Maybe you're a believer. You're a child of God. You'd say, the cross is so important to me in theory at this point in my life. But now this morning, the cross doesn't seem to impact any longer. It doesn't have the same depth. It doesn't have the same, same meaning In some way, it's become a game to you as well. Stop and say, God, would you restore unto me the joy of my salvation? If King David can pray that, we can pray that as well. God, I do love you. I am trying to be faithful to you, but I don't have joy in my salvation. I haven't stopped and looked at the cross in a long, long time. In verse 25, now it was the third hour and they crucified him. They crucified him. There's no need for Mark, the author, of the, this gospel to describe crucifixion because the readers knew well of crucifixion. But for us, we're far moved from crucifixion, aren't we? So what happened physically to Christ? He's nailed to the cross. Probably nails put right through his wrists, right through these nerves to pin him and hold him to the cross. Stretched back. Also then, his feet put together a giant nail put right through that joint in your feet as well. He's pinned to the cross. Already bleeding from being scourged. The physical process of crucifixion was brutal. The whole purpose was not just to kill you, but to torment you. To get one breath, you would pull yourself up to be able to breathe. 
let yourself back down. Pull yourself, this going up for hours and hours. And then finally, a person's strength would give out. You're no longer able to, to pull yourself up. I believe that Christ was probably a strong man. Why do I say that? Because we know that he was a carpenter. He worked hard. Peter falls into the Sea of Galilee for a moment, walking on the water, gets his eyes off of Jesus. And what does the scripture tell, tell us? That Jesus with a one-armed curl lifts Peter right out of the water. I believe Jesus had tremendous physical strength as he's suffering upon the cross. Ultimately, not being able to breathe because you can't pull yourself up, suffocate to death, sometimes experience a heart attack. There's this physical aspect to his suffering, but that's just the surface. The scripture tells us that he who knew no sin became sin for us. He's taking on my sin. Jesus said it's likened to the serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness in the Old Testament. Moses lifted up a snake that the people had to, to look upon. That was pointing to Christ. He's lifted up like a serpent. Seems like a weird analogy. It's because he's taking on my sin. Christ punishes Jesus, or the Father punishes Jesus for my sins so that I could be forgiven. Why is the crucifixion so important to us? That Christ is crucified. Yes, he's mocked. Yes, he's rejected. But he's crucified because he's paying the penalty for my sin, for our sin. For God to be just, he can't just go, well, girls will be girls and boys will be boys. You know, they're just made out of the elements of the dust. They're going to sin. I'll choose to forgive them. No, for God to be just, someone has to pay the penalty for sin. And so Christ is taking the punishment for our sin. Also, the Bible tells us that we're crucified with Christ. The New Testament goes on to declare that. Well, what does that mean? That also the power of sin is broken at the cross. So the penalty for my sin, for me to be forgiven, happens as I put faith in Jesus dying for me, but also the power of sin is broken. Don't you get tired of wrestling with sin? I'm sure there's areas of every one of our life that's saying, I just can't seem to get victory over this area of sin. Do you know where victory lies? It's at the cross. The power has been broken. The sinful nature has been crucified with Christ. The crucifixion is everything to us. Verse 16, And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12 tells us that he would be numbered with the transgressors at his death. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. The arrogance, wagging their heads, boasting, he saved others. Ha, look, he can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled. We put the pieces together. There's two being crucified, two robbers. 
Mark tells us both reviled Christ. But the other gospels let us know that one turned to Christ and asked for forgiveness. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So he had a change of heart. He began reviling Christ. But at some point as he's looking at Christ, hearing what Christ is saying, it's like, no, this is the son of God. Isn't that amazing grace? This guy, his whole life lives a sinful life. In one moment, he's reviling and cursing Christ. And then as he's coming to his very last breath, he turns, says, Jesus, will you forgive me? He says, absolutely. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. It's never too late for someone to come and receive Christ as their Savior. Maybe you're saying, you know what? My life is so sinful. Could God forgive me? I've been so hard-hearted. Absolutely. In a moment, turn. Ask for forgiveness. Believe and you'll be saved. He will forgive you on your deathbed, but you're missing out. Why would you wait to your deathbed? Plus, you don't always have the deathbed experience. Sometimes death takes you by surprise. This is the moment of salvation. Verse 33, Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Christ is being crucified, and all of Jerusalem is filled with darkness. It speaks of the severity of the cross. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out, with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabbatani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seven sayings, seven things that Jesus said from the cross, this is one of them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of Christ experiencing the punishment for our sin is his fellowship is broken with the Father. The Father looks away so that we would have the confidence to know that God will never leave us or forsake us. What is that promise based on? It's based upon the crucifixion of Christ. Jesus took the punishment for our sins so with confidence we would know that God would never leave us or forsake us. People that reject Christ are separated from God for all of eternity. Christ is separated for just a moment and he cries out, to the Father, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Brutal for Christ, also brutal for the Father. This is his son. This is his only begotten. This is who he loves. He's watching his son be crucified, taking the punishment for sin, and at this moment, looks away. The amazing love of God. The Father did this so that we could be saved. The Son did this so that we could be saved. Jesus endured this for the joy that was set before him, of being reunited with the Father and being able to save us. Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. Jesus has become a spectacle. Oh, he's calling out for Elijah. Don't give him any sour wine. Let's see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. He declared, it is finished. Paid in full. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He dismissed his own spirit. He dies. What happens next? Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bonded. The moment that Jesus breathed his last, God rips open the veil in the temple from the top to the bottom. This veil, this large curtain, 
separated people from the Ark of the Covenant, the Holy of Holies, God's presence. Because of sin, people couldn't enter into God's presence. One man, one day a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest could come in to the Holy of Holies. They'd have a rope and a bell placed upon him. True story. Just in case he died in God's presence, they could pull him out. It was a fearful thing to go into God's presence. Things don't normally rip from the top to bottom. If you're going to tear something, you tear it from the bottom to the top. What is God saying? He's saying, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, it's open access to my presence. Hebrews 4 verse 16 declares, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How come we can come into God's presence boldly? Because of the sacrifice of Jesus. It's not based on me. It's based on Jesus. Because of Jesus, because we're in Christ, because of the blood of Christ, it's open access. It's free refills. Come and receive grace. A gift you don't deserve to help in time of need. Why don't we take advantage of that more? Why don't I take advantage of that more? Because we're stubborn fools, that's why. You know, we'll go through life trying to do it on our own. And the father's like, man, I sent my son, he paid the price. Why don't you come into my presence and receive some grace to receive some help in time of need? Verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Many mocking, many responding in unbelief, but the centurion, this Roman soldier who had executed so many, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. Something special that's happening here. This is God's son. God in, in human flesh. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, and of Joses and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem, all these faithful women that served Christ through his earthly ministry, that are there at his crucifixion, watching Christ be crucified. Now when the evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who himself, waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. He has courage. He's willing to associate himself as a follower of Christ. Goes to Pilate and says, can I have the body of Christ? It's the preparation day, meaning leading up to the Sabbath. Couldn't do anything on the Sabbath. No work on the Sabbath. So this is the moment to ask for the body of Christ. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him, if he'd been dead for some time. So Pilate is confirming, is it real that Christ has died? So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joses observed where he was laid. Christ is buried. He's buried. The Son of God is buried. 
Try to put yourself in the place of Joseph of Arimathea. He goes to the cross, sees his Savior, sees his Lord nailed to the cross, his body beaten beyond recognition, blood coming down his face from the crown of thorns. Has to get up there and pull the nails out of Christ's hands. How did he do that? Pull the nails from from his feet. Get this fine linen and wrap the body of Jesus in the linen. And place it in the tomb. In doing memorial services and doing funerals with family, the most difficult part is always when the family is going to be with the body for the last time. However, that process is chosen by by the family. Sometimes it's right here in the sanctuary. This is the last moment the the service ends. Casket's sitting here where communion is. The pallbearers come, pick up the casket. The family's usually sitting here to my left. I walk down, walk with the family behind the casket, go out of the sanctuary into the foyer. The hearst is underneath the awning there. Place the casket into the vehicle and the family's standing there. Gets very real at that moment. And I look at the family and say, are you ready? No one's ever ready. They usually nod their head yes. And the hardest is when it's they're burying their child. There's something about the body. There's something special about that body. That's all we know on this side of eternity is the body. And then there, there the body goes. Sometimes it's at a graveside. What I've experienced at gravesides is mom and dad always stay the longest. There gets to a point where the graveside service is done, family and friends are dismissed, and mom and dad sit, and they look into this hole that's going to host the body of their child. And they watch the casket be buried. They watch the dirt be put on top of the casket. And Christ is buried. He rises again. You got to come back next week. If you're visiting, I don't normally say this. You got to come back next week. RMC might not end up being your church, but you got to know about the resurrection. And Christ conquers the grave so that as believers, we can face every grave with hope, with assurance. We sang this morning that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Hear him roar. He conquers sin and he conquers death. Did you know that Christ's burial is part of the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us what the gospel is. It says that Jesus Christ was crucified and buried and risen on the third day according to the scriptures. His crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection. That's the good news. Why is the burial of Christ part of the gospel? Because the New Testament tells us that just as we are crucified with Christ, we are buried with Christ. Our sin, all of our sin, is buried with Christ. To never be resurrected again. 
Christ is risen, and we're risen in newness of life. Isn't that incredible? So maybe you're wrestling with past sin. Does God really forgive me? Hey, it's in the grave. Don't dig it out of the grave. Jesus has paid for it. It's buried with Christ, and we're risen in newness of life. So here's our closing question as we prepare for communion, is what's my response to the cross? What's my response to the cross? There's communion elements that are here in the front, also in the back. I'd encourage you to wait on the Lord, not be in a rush. Come get the elements, sit down, and when you're ready, we're instructed in communion to remember well. As we've read of the cross, think of his crucifixion. Lift your eyes to your Savior. Thank him for being crucified. Thank you for his blood that is shed so that we could be forgiven. Confess sin and get right with the Lord. But if you don't know Christ as your Savior right now as we pray, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ. It would be foolish of me to assume that everybody here this morning has trusted Christ for salvation. What you choose to do with Jesus determines whether you go to heaven or hell. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make. Maybe you have been playing games at the foot of the cross and look up and see the brutal death of Jesus Christ was to die for your sins personally. For you to be forgiven, you have to ask for forgiveness. You've got to turn to faith in Jesus and say, Jesus, I believe that you're God. I believe that you died for me. I believe that you rose again. Now be my Lord. Take control of my life. I'm turning away from my sin and receiving your forgiveness. What's keeping you? Are you concerned with pleasing others? We don't see Pilate making a decision for Christ because he wanted to please people. Quit trying to be a people pleaser and receive Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your son. Jesus, we thank you for dying for us. As we celebrate communion, would you, through your Holy Spirit, cause your love to abound in our perspective? We know that there's some that don't know you, that right now that there's a wrestling that's taking place in their heart and life. Jesus, would you reveal your love? If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior for the first time, you know you've never said yes to Christ before. This makes sense to you, the gospel. You're ready to believe and trust and ask for forgiveness. Would you raise your hand? You're raising it to Christ. Leave it up, and I'm going to say a prayer with you. We'll just wait for a few moments. Anybody that says, yeah, I'm ready to receive Christ as my Savior. Praise the Lord, I see your hand over here. Praise God. Anybody else today that says, that's me, I'm ready to receive Christ. If your hand's raised, praise this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I turn from my sin and receive your grace and forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me and thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord. God is good.